Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast, which is brought to you by Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. And today, I'm very happy to say that we have Kyle Harper on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Plagues Upon the Earth, Disease and the Course of Human History. It's out from Princeton just this year, 2021. Kyle, welcome to the show. Hi, Marshall. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a Roman historian by training, and my my last book before this current one was a study of the environmental factors in the later Roman Empire, and that included both the climate, the physical climate and climate change, as well as infectious disease. And in the later period of Roman history, there's a series of really major pandemics. And I simply got obsessed with the history of infectious disease. And I wanted to know more about how the the Roman chapter fit into the bigger human story of the encounter with infectious diseases. So in 2017, I started writing a book about the history of infectious disease, the history of pandemics that would try to try to sort of update one of my favorite books of all time, which is William McNeil's 1976 classic. Mine too. Mine, one of my favorite books. books. It's just one of those books that stays with you. I have read it countless times. I love it. And it's still very prescient. McNeil was just brilliant, obviously. He was a pioneer of global and environmental history. But we just know a lot more than we did in 1976. The, The entire revolution in genetics has has shaped what we know about the the history of pathogenic microbes. And then just the the sheer amount of work in in the history of medicine and economic history that could really help us update that book. So I started to to write an update to a a book that I kind of secretly wish I'd I'd written myself. (laughs) Uh, And and lo and behold, the, the uh, a pandemic happened. My my book, the early drafts uh, were were framed much like McNeil's to remind us that infectious diseases uh, are the product of microbial evolution, and we can never completely win. Um, we can control them more or less, uh, and we need to remember that that evolution doesn't stop. And so the book was was going to be framed as a history, but also have a a kind of warning built into the to the introduction and conclusion. Of course, uh, nature had other ideas. And uh, when I was about halfway done writing the book, COVID-19 happened. And it's just been surreal writing about the history of pandemics during a, a pandemic. Uh, but it certainly it, it gave a new kind of urgency, I think, and interest, I hope, in revisiting some of the really big questions about the, the role of infectious disease in human history. Before we get into the book, I want to ask you a kind of inside baseball question as a historian myself. What was it like to wade into essentially fields that you were not trained in? That yeah, I, I just am very interested in the process of, of how you learned about all this. It must have been an enormous amount of work. It's, it's scary, but I think that the, the best work always takes risks and hopes to um, is willing to, to make mistakes um, in the interest of being able to, to pull insights that can only be gained by 
trying to, to bring together knowledge from different domains. And I've been, I've been very fortunate throughout my, my own career to have mentors and friends um, and colleagues who've helped me and who've really encouraged bold interdisciplinary work uh, that that tries to to bring together really different disciplines. So there's a lot of there's a lot of biology in this book. I'm not going to fool anyone into thinking that I'm a, <laughs> I'm a biologist. Uh, at best, I can I can have a, a good conversation with with a microbiologist about the the nature and history of infectious diseases. But um, and, and even that is hard and takes a lot of a lot of work. I said mentors that have helped me along the way, and and one very uh, preeminent one is, is a historian at Harvard named Michael McCormick, who uh, I think was, was a visionary in seeing how important genetics was going to be for understanding history. Uh, and from the time I was a graduate student was really not by my own, uh, <laughs> my own will or insight or anything, but, but because of the, the environment and the mentorship was put into conversation with anthropologists, with uh, medical doctors, with microbiologists. And to me, that's always just been what I enjoy most. And um, I think there's so much to be gained from having those conversations with, with experts in other disciplines and then trying to, trying to find ways to, to see how knowledge from different domains can, can be complementary. Uh, and I mentioned in the introduction, the, the biologist Edward Wilson uh, wrote a book called Consilience. Um, and that word literally from the Latin root means something like the leaping together of knowledge, the way it, it sort of falls into place um, when, you, when you try to recognize that that we can say things, learn things, explore questions that we wouldn't otherwise be able to without combining different disciplines. So the book, the book draws a lot from, uh, from microbiologists who are helping us understand the, the evolutionary background of pathogens. Uh, and it tries to, to do that uh, as well as a historian can pull it off. Yeah, I want to talk to you for a long time about this. We'd probably bore the listeners. I had a similar sort of experience. I met a geneticist in about 2000. Um, who explained to me how uh, the new sciences of human genetics were going to rewrite prehistory. And they did. They, they really, what we know about the migrations of peoples has changed entirely since these people came to the table. Yeah, it, it has. I mean, it's as, as fundamental, it's even more fundamental than radiocarbon. And I think it's hard for us to wrap our minds around now um, how revolutionary that was to be able to yeah, yeah. it's true. It's true. Pathogen. And, you know, there was a kind of prehistory of it where they used blood groups. There was a guy named Cavalli Sforza right, who did yeah. this blood group work. And then the geneticists sort of took it from there uh, and, and they improved upon what he had found. Exactly. But it, it really has transformed what we understand about prehistory and the history of human migrations. Well, um, let's get to the book. I want you to define uh, three terms for us, or at least two. One is pathogen. The other is parasite. And then this word germ. <laughs> so these, are, these are words that um, that we know are fundamental, and they they get used in slightly different ways. And there's a lot of overlap between them. And and I do try to use all of them in the book. A pathogen, if we start with the, the etymology, um, just sort of means a, a disease maker. Uh, it is a, a, an organism that causes disease in another organism. 
So it's, it's a way of describing really uh, what, what we might best call a, a medical phenomenon. Uh, pathogens are things that, that make us sick. Uh, and mm-hmm. um, that can include a huge variety of, of biological entities from a, a huge number of different taxa or biological categories. So bacteria can be pathogens. Most aren't. Uh, viruses um, are usually pathogens. Uh, protozoa, single-celled organisms with a nucleus, uh, are, are often pathogens. Fungi can be pathogenic. Worms of different biological classes can be pathogenic. So pathogen is something that makes us sick. Mm-hmm. A parasite is, uh, paras- uh, the word parasite is an ecological term. If we, again, go back to the Greek roots, a parasite is somebody who eats off the table of someone else. It's a, somebody mm-hmm. who, who sort of sucks the, the food from, from someone else. And it's an ecological term in the sense that it describes the relationship between organisms in terms of the flow of energy through ecosystems. So many uh, pathogens are parasites. The way we use the words in English is a little bit different because the word parasite has sometimes in English had the connotation of actually what we might call macro parasites like worms, different helminth parasites like hookworm or whipworm. We sometimes, in English, when you say parasite, you just mean those. But but actually, ecologically, you can just as well use the term to, to describe bacteria that are, uh, that are exploiting us to take uh, energy and nutrients. So parasite can be a, a pretty flexible word. And I think I think what matters really is that we need to think of infectious disease in ecological terms. Parasites are uh, entities that are trying to to steal to to get either the energy or the cellular machinery to to pass on their genes to future generations. So the the word parasite helps us think about disease not just from a medical point of view but from a, a bigger ecological perspective. Then germ is just a great uh good old English colloquial term that, um, that we can, we can throw around sometimes for literary variation. You can only, yeah, right. you don't want to say the same word at the same time. Yeah. Right. Many times. Um, and, and it's a colloquial word that, that maybe doesn't have quite the sharp boundaries of the others. Um, but they, they all overlap a, a germ. Usually, uh, we use to mean a micro parasite. So, uh, any of those bacteria or viruses that, that make us sick. Um, thank you very much for that. That will help us frame the debate. One of the things I really liked about your book is it has a thesis. <laughs> Not all books do. And I'm just going to read it. It's so pithy. Uh, human history shapes disease ecology and pathogen evolution. Disease ecology and pathogen evolution in turn shape the course of human history. So we have these two things interacting. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? That's it. I mean, that's the that's the big picture. There's a lot to be, to be said about the, the details over the 300,000 years or so of the human past. But uh, if you think about infectious disease from an ecological perspective, you can start by remembering that humans are animals. And if we were looking at any animal, we would probably start by looking at it in its environment and comparing it to its closest relatives. So we could start by comparing humans with chimpanzees. Chimpanzees have infectious diseases. In fact, in the terms of comparison with other organisms in nature, they actually have quite a lot of infectious diseases. Uh, but 
the truth is we have vastly more um, and humans have lots of diseases, lots of, of pathogens. We have a lot of pathogens that are really, really um, just terribly focused on exploiting us. A lot of <laughs> animals have diseases that are, that are what we call generalists. They can't be too picky because if you over-specialize, then you're really dependent on one host. And that's often not a very good evolutionary strategy. But our pathogens can get away with it uh, because exploiting humans turns out to be a very good game to, yeah. to be in. Um, so we have a lot of germs. They're, they're very focused on us. And many of them are quite nasty. Of course, many animal diseases are, are very deleterious for the animal host. But humans have an awful lot of really awful diseases. And, um, and so I think when we look at ourselves through this lens that we would use to, to try and understand any other species, we realize there's something funny going on here. And we still obey the, the laws of nature, of ecology and evolution. But we also have this thing called history, meaning the cumulative culture-driven change over time. We live so differently than our grandparents did. Uh, and they, they lived differently than their grandparents. And the way human beings lived 10,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago is, is inconceivably different. We dispersed over the globe. We domesticated animals and plants. We built cities. We built empires and trade networks. We crossed the oceans. We now have learned to tap fossil fuels and multiply to, to 8 billion. So ecologically, we, have, we live like no other species. And the key to understanding the human disease pool is to see us both as part of nature, but also as a, as a force of nature that transforms the, the ecological conditions of disease and therefore the, the evolution of infectious diseases. So really to understand the disease pool requires us to understand human history. Then in turn, the flip side of the thesis is that human history has been deeply influenced by the force of infectious disease. It's the most uh, important factor in human mortality before the 20th century. It's easy to forget that before 1900, even in the most economically developed societies, most people, most of the time, died of infectious disease. So the effects of disease are pervasive, starting with their, their influence on mortality. And then one of the, the main, I think, features of interest that the book tries to, to get at in really broad terms is that the disease pool is variable. So it's variable over space and it's variable over time. That is that diseases are structured geographically. The burden of disease is structured by geography as well as by human constructed ecological factors like urbanization. And then the disease burden changes over time. It gets better, it gets worse, uh, and it often gets worse very, very quickly uh, in the case of epidemics. But these it's important to understand human history to to try and account for these these patterns of variability in both time and space because they've deeply imprinted uh, the the development of human societies. Very well said. I mean, it's as if in our history, as we changed the way we lived, we created new niches or new sorts of little beasties. Exactly. Those, those beasties they occupied those 
niches. Exactly. Yeah, nature finds a way. And every niche we create, these little beasties will find a way to exploit it. It's it's amazing. And and I would add often quite quickly. Uh, I think this is one of the the sort of big takeaways from um, from the study of, of evolution in the last generation is that it's really fast and really pervasive and constantly going on, particularly for microbes that that um, have very, very short generation times right. and mutate quickly very often, particularly viruses, that when we create a new niche, uh, they're, they're ready to, to try, they're constantly trying to exploit it. Yeah, if you want to see natural selection in action, that's where you should look. Because these things are changing all the time. I mean, we've seen that with COVID itself. Exactly. I mean, we're watching, um, it, it is, it'll take some perspective, I think, for us to really wrap our minds around what, what we're going through. But we're, we're, one of the things that we're experiencing is the, the single greatest, richest, most intense uh, observation of, of mass scale selection of evolution. Mm-hmm real time it's yeah, the, no, it's, it's the it's single richest map of of an evolutionary episode um and and it's really quite extraordinary yeah um one of the other things i really liked about your book is that it's divided into very coherent parts and i'd like you just very briefly take us through those parts if that's okay just a very brief summary to give people a kind of flavor of what they'll get when they read the book and those four parts are if i have them right essentially fire farming transcontinental travel at transatlantic travel, and then fossil fuels. So let's begin with farming. I mean, let's begin with fire. Um, and uh, this is the era in which humans spread all over the earth. And, and, and this is kind of an amazing thing. We are the greatest invasive species imaginable because we ended up everywhere. Uh, and you say the fire was kind of crucial for the spread, but also crucial in terms of pathogens and parasites. Could you talk a little bit about that? Right. Well, it- uh, I, I probably am a little bit of a sucker for a for a tidy organizational scheme. For <laughs> you and me both. Pretty <laughs> messy, uh, but but I do think it can can help us uh, wrap our minds around the the big story that that I'm hoping to to try and tell. And this is a a book that that belongs in the the genre of big history or deep history that that thinks there's things that you lose when you zoom out, but there's also um, things that you gain. And it's definitely uh, not a book that, that can say everything about uh, every encounter with disease. But but I think, from say this from my own experience as a Roman historian working on disease, that actually I can understand the particulars of, of those moments, those tiny little slices of the, the human story by, by zooming out. So uh, that's a, an apologia for uh, for a tidy organizational scheme that tries to to say, if you're going to organize a, a deep history of, of humanity and your your main terms were really about the ways that humans have transformed global ecology, then you would want to organize it um, around technology and around energy. And so uh, I'm also a, a terrible sucker for alliteration. So um, <laughs> fire, farms, uh, and frontiers. I had to stretch for that for that third one. And then fossil fuels um, is just, you know, handy symbols of some of the really big technologies that have empowered humans to be ecological engineers for, for better and worse. And fire is sort of the 
the the most primordial technology in some sense that helps make us human. It it is controlled by hominins before Homo sapiens even exists. But it's one of it's not the only thing that makes us us. But it's certainly one of those key things that that really sets hominin evolution apart because it's a very powerful technology, and it's unlike in the technologies that that any other species possesses. Um, and it, among other things, makes us very, very versatile. And it's one of the ways in which hominins manage to, to get basically everywhere. Um, that's strange. Other apes, other monkeys. Yeah, they don't um, go everywhere. They're, they're very um, territorially confined because they're well adapted to survive in, in very particular environments. Humans can survive almost everywhere from from almost deserts to Arctic tundra. And one of the reasons, obviously, is intelligence and culture and social cooperation. One of them is fire as well, is the ability to um, transform landscapes and to, to stay warm and above all, to cook. So really, in the beginning, I'm trying to, to get at the, the fact that humans are primates, but uh, we're we're a global primate because of these various features of of what makes us us, and that has an important bearing on our on our disease burden, um, and it among other things exposes us to a huge diversity of disease environments and pathogens and potential pathogens. And in some ways, one of the one of the big dynamics of human history is dispersal and then connectivity. And certainly, we can understand the history of disease. Uh, in that dimension as well. Humans get everywhere. We get lots of diseases. Then we find ways to reconnect, whether by trade or or migration or conquest. And so fire is trying to set the scene um, by, by positioning us within nature, by understanding that, that we have pathogens and parasites like any other species, but that it's our ecological fashioning of the environment to, to suit our needs that, that sets in motion the, the unique evolutionary trajectory, both of humans and also the pathogens that will, uh, that will parasitize our, our success. Farming gets its own uh, sort of framing as, as a section because it is one of the most revolutionary ecological transitions in all of human history. Around 10,000 years ago, in various parts of the globe, humans... Uh, start domesticating plants and then domesticating a wider range of animals as well. Uh, and the transition from a largely mobile, largely small scale, uh, hunter-gatherer lifestyle to sedentary agricultural lifestyles is also a revolution for human health in various ways, not just in terms of the disease burden, but also in terms of diet and labor and social stress um, things that, that this book doesn't really talk much about because you can't cover everything. This is a story of infectious disease. And the transition to agriculture is a, a watershed in the history of our diseases. And I think I try to tell the story a little bit differently than, than sometimes it's been told because uh, I think there's been an overemphasis on the past as the domestication of animals as kind of the the great moment when we get a bunch of diseases. Yeah, you you have a new story. I should tell listeners you have a new story to tell there, and I was I was pleasantly surprised to see it. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, I try to put the transition to agriculture 
in, in broader ecological and evolutionary terms. So humans have a, experienced a, a huge lifestyle transition, and that is what reshapes the ecological conditions for infectious disease and then drives constantly ongoing uh, evolution in, in our pathogens. And I think we talk about a couple of ways that that really is, I think, materially different than maybe what McNeil and others uh, who've been influenced by him have said. Uh, and one is that many of the, the so-called crowd diseases that is directly transmissible pathogens, diseases caused by directly transmissible pathogens that really require a large congregation of human hosts to survive, don't actually uh, emerge immediately in the Neolithic. Although they probably do constantly emerge, we should say they don't sort of establish. Mm -hmm. they're, they're actually younger, uh, as we know them, than we used to think. What does happen in the early Neolithic, so in the millennia uh, of early farming is that we start to acquire, uh, among other things, uh, an unusual number of fecal oral pathogens. So these are germs that um, that are gastro cause gastroenteric disease. Largely, they uh, are transmitted when infected fecal matter finds its way uh, into the the mouth of a future host, whether by contaminated water, which is probably the most important route, uh, or um, dirty food or uh, fingers or environments that allow fecal oral transmission to, to succeed. Humans, lots of animals in nature have diarrhea and dysentery. We are weird. We have lots of it. There are a huge number of very dangerous diseases. Uh, and I think these sometimes don't have the, the prominence in, say, Western consciousness that they they probably should because we've we've conquered them. I mean, uh, diarrhea and dysentery are among the, the biggest killers annually worldwide. Always, yeah. always a huge burden of disease, and they still are tragically in in parts of the world. Although there's been enormous progress even in the last twenty years, but throughout our past, these were just a constant uh, source of, of disease burden and mortality. And you can tell from the book that it it does kind of bother me that uh, all the respiratory diseases, measles and smallpox and diphtheria and whooping cough, everybody knows their name. They're famous. They're notorious, I should say. But yeah. the the diarrheal diseases don't have the same kind of notoriety uh, that, they, that their respiratory uh, diseases do and that they absolutely deserve. Shigellosis, um, bacillary dysentery uh, is one of the great diseases in human history, the same for, for typhoid. Uh, but they're kind of, they get obscured, I think, in, in a lot of the big histories of disease. So I try to talk about the, the Neolithic revolution, the transition to sedentary lifestyles as creating the, the environment where those diseases can adapt to human beings. And in, in that sense, it's sort of the transition to agriculture is one of the reasons why we have such a heavy burden of disease from these kinds of pathogens. I'm, I'm reminded very briefly of a, I don't remember when I found this document, but it was a document um, in which Tatars had encountered Russians. This was in the 14th or 15th century. And they couldn't understand, the, the Tatars were nomadic and they couldn't understand the Russians at all because as the Tatars said, they lived in their own filth. 
<laughs> they lived in cities. They lived in towns. And the Tatars just couldn't understand this. Why would you want to live in your own filth? Exactly. Well said. Um, and one of the other, I think, really important implications of the what we've been learning from the, the genomes of our pathogens um, is that evolution is constant. And so in the past, I think we tended to imagine that when humans settle down and start farming, what happened was we got the diseases that our domesticated animals had. Mm -hmm. And there's some truth to that. But I think if we zoom out and look more panoramically at the, the way that diseases move and transmit and evolve, I think we can recognize that wild animals are more often uh, a source of our novel pathogens. And in many cases, domesticated animals are a bridge um, through which diseases move between hosts. In fact, we often give our domesticated animals our diseases. Yeah. Uh, so that story's been flipped on its head. But yeah. the, the bigger point is the one that, that champions of a paradigm known as One Health that argues human health is really deeply embedded in nature and ecosystems that human health and animal health, animal health of wild animals and domesticated animals is really connected and evolution is constant. So I think that changes the, the way we need to tell the story of, of how farming affected the, the history of infectious disease. And it's one in which evolution is constant and responds to the, to the environments we create uh, sedentary lifestyles, domesticated animals, and then also cities and trade networks are a big part of that. Yeah, that's a nice transition to the next part of your book, which is about, I was interested in this, transcontinental travel, but you focus on the Atlantic particularly. It's movement across the Atlantic back and forth that really changes things. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. And and in some sense, I, I hope the book is arguing that that the division between the ancient medieval world and the, the early modern world is kind of arbitrary. Um, and I try and paint the Middle Ages as a, as a phase of the human past that's not at all a regression or, or looking backward, but it's actually one where connectivity, particularly across the old world, is accelerating. And in that sense, the, the plague pandemics are an index of, of sort of the proto-globalization, but one that's still um, confined to, to the respective hemispheres. What happens in 1492 is then really uh, a very important extension of that, that growing interconnectivity of the human species. And it's a pretty dramatic one. And the crossing of the Atlantic is triggers a, a biological uh, exchange that the historians have called the Columbian exchange that yeah. affects you know, every category of life and certainly uh, means the the transfer and exchange of microbes uh, across the Atlantic. And so uh, I try to retell that story drawing from a lot of the the great work um, both in the history of disease but but also on Atlantic history and trying to understand how how the the uh, movement of germs in the the post uh, discovery period is part of a longer trajectory, but also uh, a really fundamental acceleration of it with some very dire consequences. But also, I'm trying to to 
argue that the the introduction of European germs to the new world is really only a part of of a bigger global story. And so uh, I try to point out, for instance, that the the smallpox virus seems to to get more deadly everywhere in the 16th century. And I think sometimes we've imagined the the really devastating impacts of Spanish arrival in the new world in maybe two blinkered terms. But as smallpox is raging in Mexico City, it's also raging in Ming China. So I think we can we can get overly focused on the the transfer of some very important European germs to to the Americas when really I think we should try and see the the early modern pulse of globalization in, in fact, wider planetary frames of of vision. Yeah. And it goes both ways. I I was thinking, I don't know if this is true and maybe a listener can correct me if I'm wrong, but the so-called Spanish flu came from Kansas. I think that's the first place we found it. And then it was that's, that's certainly, that true? It's been argued, and it's <laughs> it's certainly made popular by by John Barry's great book um, on on the uh, the great influenza. Uh, I think that's now considered pretty speculative. Um, there's been some some good work on the, the history of the flu, and actually, in my view, we don't know precisely where it started because it was everywhere at once. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's very, it's been impossible to, to know with certainty, um, where, where it came from. And in some sense, maybe that's the, that's the point. I mean, there's, there's very, very little chance that it came from Spain. Uh, it was just called that because the Spanish yeah. press was reporting on it. Uh, but it could have come from, uh, from an avian, we know it was an avian source in North America, in East Asia, in war-torn Europe, um, we we simply don't know. By the time yeah. we have records, it's everywhere. Yeah, this is tricky because even in the case of COVID, the most recent version of COVID, the one that is bothering everyone, we're not sure where it came from. It keeps showing up in places where it shouldn't be, earlier than it should be. <laughs> yeah, it 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 definitely um, spread very quickly and very quietly. But I do think it's a good example of the the power of these genetic tools and. Um, the the relation the genetic relationship between um, coronaviruses that are very very closely related species in wild bats in central and southern China mm-hmm. um, is very close. Um, we may find uh, a form of the the virus that's that's even closer that can tell us even more about the, the origins of the, the virus if there's an intermediate species between bats, which of course yeah. is possible. And again, reflects this story that microbes are, are constantly moving between different host species. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting case where yeah. um, I think we may, with, with enough study and surveillance, um, be able to get even closer than we are right now, which, which does already make it very, very likely that it's a wild bat population in China. Yeah. Um, Well, that's a nice segue to the the fourth era and part of your book, and that is about fossil fuels here. And the real story here is, uh, I could be wrong about this, not so much new diseases, but science. Suddenly we have something beyond fire and what we now call social distancing to help us, us combat these things. And, and, 
uh, I wondered if you could give us just a kind of greatest hits in terms of the advance of understanding of pathogens and parasites and, and how they enabled us to fight these things effectively, which we can now do. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm a, uh, very much a believer that um, that humans manage to escape from the the dire burden of infectious disease that haunted us as a species for the vast majority of our history for two really big reasons. One is science, and the other is social adaptation. And there's no single uh, moment or discovery that really. Uh, represents the turning point. And in fact, I think we can see the, the roots of human social adaptation to infectious disease are, are very old uh, and include things like urban uh, sanitary regulation uh, uh, that include things like quarantine and lockdown uh, in the event of plague. So there's a, there's a deeper backstory that in some cases even goes back to, to pre-modernity. Uh, and that includes science too, the, the effort to, to understand the, the transmission of diseases. Uh, but these, these discoveries and understanding of the, the prevention, ultimately treatment of infectious disease, really picks up in the 18th century during the Enlightenment. And I think largely due to, to the empirical mindset that uh, you have to derive, uh, you have to derive truths from trying to observe facts and then test um, those truths against experience. And we, we need to get back to that. That's, <laughs> we need to get back to that. It seems, it seems, uh, seems so simple. Um, sometimes it does feel like we're, we're regressing, but um, well, that's how Jenner is able to pull together many ideas that are in the air and really uh, focus in on the, the efficacy of what we now known as vaccination, uh, and it's a it's a triumph. It's a beautiful thing, and I think it's it's worth um, trying to understand and celebrate um, where that comes from. And of course, in the 19th century, there becomes a, a greater and greater understanding of the the reality that there are uh, invisible particle like um, entities that that are the cause of disease. What we can we can call germ theory, uh, and then ultimately more systematic uh, discoveries of vaccines, uh, other pharmaceuticals like antibiotics, and, and even insecticides that help um, achieve vector control. So there's a, there is a kind of, I think, triumphant story of human ingenuity as well as social adaptation uh, in the, the rise of good public health policy uh, and, and the provision of, of basic goods that, that allow people to, to achieve good health. But, 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 at the same time, what, what I'm trying to, to do in the last few chapters is to remind us that these victories have been achieved over an actually ever greater threat of infectious disease, because it also means we're multiplying, which requires energy and ecological transformation. And so I, I also want to, to argue that the modern world sees an acceleration of the threat of infectious disease. So we don't conquer a, a completely static group of enemies. It's, it's whack-a-mole. And we do gain the upper hand in, in really important ways that allow the more than doubling of global life expectancy. But evolution never stops. And the COVID-19 pandemic was foreseeable. It was, we were forewarned, but it comes in a, in a just continuous stream of threats that, that include 
other coronaviruses that includes AIDS, that includes polio, that includes cholera. Um, so we, we were complacent. And I think it can maybe help us to recognize that, that science didn't get rid of infectious diseases. It gave us the upper hand, particularly when it's combined with good policy, with, with wise social adaptations. But nature didn't stop, and it's never going to stop. And uh, preparedness means continuing advances in science, but also will require uh, wise social adaptations as well to to maybe go back to the to the level of control that we had achieved in the the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Um, I really like the way your book opened because it pointed out that we, and I'm just speaking of, well, let's just talk about Americans for now, are surrounded by what generically can be considered as antibiotic measures. <clears throat> they are it, everywhere. It, From your refrigerator to the way things are packaged to, it's, it's every place. It's at the water you drink. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I open <laughs> by trying to, to remind us that even in our, our daily routines, um, in ways that, that we don't think about consciously, that are just habit, uh, we, are, we are sort of constantly modifying our bodies, our environments, uh, our groups in ways that are meant to, to control disease. So whether it's the the kind of um, compounds in our soaps or the the toilet that um, separates you from the dangers of your waste or, or I, I want to say, uh, compulsory vaccination that makes it safe to put hundreds and hundreds of kids in a school building together uh, and is really the, the cornerstone of, of our control of viral threats, um, which we are thinking about now more, obviously, but there are so many other ways in which our daily lives and routines are, are shaped by really ecological management. Yeah. I mean, just your refrigerator does a great job of keeping exactly. you healthy. There's a lot of bacteria <laughs> that wants your food and yeah. um, it's picky, but if you keep it at about 40 degrees Fahrenheit, more or less, um, you're going to have time to beat them to it. Yeah, <laughs> right. If you if you keep it refrigerated and then cook it, you're probably okay. Although my grandfather was always very worried about something called trigonosis. And darned if I know what trigonosis really is. But he was yeah. always very worried about it. It's a, it's a parasite that um, you can certainly get from raw or undercooked um, pork. pork. Yeah, Although pork. it's, it's a lot less less common than it. Used to be. Yeah, no, it, it, yeah, that's why I say I don't know. He talked about it a lot. Like he was very worried about it. And this was in yeah. rural Kansas, but I don't even know what it is. So I guess that's a good thing and a bad thing. Yeah. And, and nicely, you know, it's it's the, the trade-offs because I don't fear trigonosis anymore, but maybe I should think about things like trigonosis more than I do. Um, I am complacent. I would, I would agree with that. Um, let me ask a, a penultimate question. We have a traditional final question on the NBN. And, and that is, uh, and you've answered this to some extent, but I think the listeners would be interested to know how COVID fits into this picture. Um, you've described these four eras and a long history of interaction between these germs and us and how we create environments for them and then they adapt and then we fight them. Where, where does COVID fit into this picture? Right. Could, well, yeah. it's, it's a question that, that everybody asks and is going to ask. Uh, and it's, it's one that I admit uh, I'm still not totally comfortable with. I have a I have a line in the book that some people will think is pathetic, but I say historians aren't journalists or futurists. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. I'm a Roman historian. I need right. about 2,000 years of perspective before I can tell you about COVID. But 
I, I really do in my heart believe that it's it's so important that we have a deeper historical understanding of this moment, the challenges and the way forward. And I try to argue that that COVID was foreseeable. We were mm-hmm. warned. In 1991, the Institute of Medicine in the United States published a, a, a book that was completely a, a warning that exactly this was going to happen. And it's so easy to be to be complacent. But uh, obviously, we, we should have seen this coming because SARS and highly pathogenic avian influenza and Zika virus and West Nile virus and Lyme disease, all of these pathogens that are that are threatening Ebola, uh, that are trying to, to adapt to, to human hosts, um, that, that we should have been more prepared. And so I, I try and say the COVID-19 pandemic doesn't come out of nowhere. And at the same time, it, it's a it's kind of a perfect storm, as as Dr. Anthony Fauci and his colleague David Morins have described it, of of biological capacities that exploit our societies, our connectivity, our economies, and uh, and it's the SARS-CoV-2 is simply very good. It's extremely contagious. the The way in which it spreads, the the fact that it can even spread uh, asymptomatically, makes it a really formidable microbial enemy. But I don't think it'll be the last. We're not even out of the woods on this pandemic. We we don't know what's going to happen. The Delta variant will will run out of hosts, but we enter a winter where we don't know if if we're going to have passed the peak or we're going to, to see it surge again as we come back indoors and other respiratory ailments increase. And then more worrisome is simply the the combination of vaccine hesitancy at home with vaccine inequity abroad. That means the virus will keep circulating. It'll keep evolving. It'll keep mutating. We don't know if it's if it's reached a kind of fitness peak where it can't get more contagious, but um, we'll leave that one to the to the virologist. As a historian, um, my my gut is that we're, we're not out of the woods with this one yet, but even if we do kind of manage to muddle through to a, to an a endurable state with COVID, there'll be another pandemic. So it's crucial that we, we learn the lessons of this one. And as a historian, to me, the, the, the huge lesson is so obvious that our, our technical solutions are not enough on their own. If you had said we would have a, three vaccines that are almost miraculously safe and efficient in less than a year, it would have been reasonable to think that that we would be able to get out of this easily. And that's been proven not to be the case, um, that there are a lot of other ingredients that we need to think about uh, in confronting a pandemic. So I hope that, that history can help inform those conversations, give us a a wider perspective. Well, Kyle, thank you very much for being on the show. We have a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, I'm I'm still trying to recover from uh, working like a madman to finish a book uh, about pandemics during the pandemic, uh, and <laughs> trying to trying to step back a little bit um, and think about what what I think would be interesting to me and and hopefully to others as well. But I really am writing the book fell in love with thinking about the the relationships between humans and animals, how much we're learning about that too from uh, from scholars who work on 
genomes and are sequencing both modern and ancient genomes of animals and the kinds of historical insights that that's giving us into uh, human history and our species role as a as a planetary force. So I think I'm going to do something about the history of animals, whether it's a global history or trying to explore how the the history of animals can help us understand the Roman Empire kind of back into my my normal territory. I, I'm not sure yet, and I'm enjoying not being sure of exactly what's next. But <laughs> That's a fun part. Yeah, it's fine. You can bank That's on I, I envy you because you get to work with these geneticists and they really are discovering new things every day. Let, let me tell our listeners that we've been talking to Kyle Harper about his terrific book, Plagues Upon the Earth, Disease and the Course of Human History from Princeton University Press 2021. Kyle, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Marshall.